Well, go ahead and take your Bibles out, open them to Ephesians chapter 1. Uh, I was able to uh, eke out three verses this morning, uh, though we will be uh, addressing uh, over the next three, at least my three sermons, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14 as a whole. But we're going to take it in parts. And the first part is verses 3 through 6. And as we've been introduced to Ephesians, we find that, I hope that we're reminded that Ephesians is clearly lined out in six chapters divided there in three chapters that are doctrinal and Christological and three chapters that are practical or on the new life we have in Christ. And so the doctrinal and Christological Chapters are not a pass-through by which we get to the real relevant stuff of marriage and child-rearing and submission to authority, but it is the foundation upon which that new life is lived out. And so Paul does also does not sugarcoat the reality that this new life will be fraught with the schemes of the devil which will appear, appeal to our old nature, and we are to see that we are clothed with the presence of our Redeemer as if clad in armor. And so, as I've said before, this can be a difficult uh, book to organize under a main theme. So it may seem like I'm using the broadest theme available to me, but... Uh, it is one that I find that we can revisit over and over again in the epistle, and that is uh, I do see that Paul has an overarching desire to show and explain the exalted Christ, especially with an emphasis on our union with him, utilizing such language as in Christ, in the beloved, in him, over and over again here in this epistle. And so our, during our time in, our, in this letter, uh, we're going to look at the subject of the exalted Christ under four headings. We'll spend the next uh, few weeks under the heading of the heavenly witness to the exalted Christ in chapter 1. Then we'll look at the earthly witness to the exalted Christ in chapters 2 and 3. And then as we move into chapters 4 through 6, we'll see the earthly reality of the exalted Christ in chapters 4 and 5, and the heaven reality of the exalted Christ in chapter 6. All this so that as we go and work through Ephesians together, we may greatly or much more appreciate the redemption won for us in Christ, the redemption provided to us, in Christ, and it's by that knowledge that we may also attain or be aware of the power afforded to us in Christ to live the Christian life. Follow along as I read for us Ephesians chapter 1, beginning, beginning in verse 3 through 14. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. 
even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. To which I say, Amen. (laughs) Let us pray. O Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that in it you reveal yourself to us. We thank you that we find a Savior who is not above us only, but is also with us and among us. And so, Lord, we ask that your Spirit would attend the preaching of this this word so that it would be profitable to our souls, to our lives, Lord. That you would use it to strengthen our faith to the praise of your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as you know, I uh, am a man, or maybe you don't know this, but uh, I, I find myself a little eclectic in my uh, music habits. Uh, I'm not a uh, music file or audiophile guy that I am able to get in touch with such of the nuances of music and and sit there and with a jazz album on and just be overcome by all the riffs and all the improv- improvisations and and whatnot. But as far as categories of music, I find that I enjoy. Uh, many different styles. One of the ones that I enjoy uh, is Orthodox Christian hip-hop. Not Orthodox as in the Eastern Orthodox Church as if there's uh, some Greek hip-hop music out there, but Orthodox in the sense that there's certainly some uh, uh, Christian hip-hop artists that don't follow the truth of Scripture, but Shailin is not one of them. And He has an album that came out in 2014 titled Lyrical Theology Part 2. And he opens in the first track with these words. He says, theology is the study of God and it's very important. Doxology is an expression of praise to God. So the point here is that all theology should ultimately lead to doxology. If theology doesn't lead to doxology, then we've actually missed the point of theology. So if you have theology without doxology, you just have dead, cold orthodoxy. On the other side, we have people who say, forget theology. I just want praise. But if we have doxology without theology, 
we actually have idolatry because it's just a random expression of praise, but it's not actually informed by the truth of who God is. So God is concerned with both. He's concerned with an accurate understanding of him and that accurate understanding of him leading to a response of praise, adoration, and worship towards him. Why do I read this for us this morning is because I think this is the idea we get when Paul opens his letter to the Ephesians with a treatise, a, a singular sentence, by the way, a treatise on the Trinitarian operations in salvation before he gives them practical application. We're going to discuss some deep water stuff this morning, though in an effort to not overwhelm you, I intend to be brief uh, with it and hopefully be clear in my preaching, but it will be theological in nature. It will be intensely related to this uh, uh, theological category called the doctrine of God and specifically the revelation of the triune God in scripture, especially as it relates to our salvation. And so our passage this morning, or the one I read, actually addresses all three persons of the Godhead. And we will address these in consecutive sermons. And this morning, as we address them in verses uh, three through six, we'll look at God the Father and the operations of salvation. Then we'll look in verses 7 through 10 that concern the work of the Son of God. And then 11 through 14 concerning the Holy Spirit. And the idea this morning as we focus our attention on uh, this Trinitarian operation of salvation. It is something uh, very important uh, to us for the Word of God opens this letter to the Ephesians with such a doctrine. There's implications to the use of these terms, Father and Son and Lord and God. Spirit in him, as I'd mentioned before, election and predestination. There's a reference to before the foundation of the world, holy and blameless are also used such that we would understand more rightly who God has revealed himself to be. And what I want to do before we get started, before we maybe focus in on the Father and see the benefit of doing that this morning, I want to read for us a portion of the Athanasian Creed. Uh, the Athanasian Creed is named for Athanasius as the 4th century bishop, and a prominent defender of Trinitarianism. What we see here in the Athanasian Creed is a, uh, a better articulation or a further articulation of the doctrine of the Trinity that came out of Nicaea. They understand that this creed came probably in the 6th century. We know Nicaea to be in the 4th century. And uh, they, though it's attributed to Athanasius, it's not clear as its full pedigree. Uh, but it certainly reflects the teaching of Athanasius and the dogmatism that he had about the Trinity. 
And I want to read for you the first half. It's, it's actually quite long, and it's really beautiful. It's written uh, almost lyrically. It's almost, it's almost a poem, so to speak. Why, why are creeds important to us here this morning? Because creeds, as they are rooted in Scripture, they find themselves not above Scripture, but they find themselves subservient to it in the sense that it serves the church well to have creeds so that the systematizing of the truth found in Scripture would be easily remembered to those that didn't have the Scriptures as we do today. Does that make them irrelevant, erroneous? Does that make them unneeded? No, it it roots us in the reality that though there were believers during this time in the 6th century that could not read a lick of the Word of God, they knew the truth of Scripture through the creeds, the testimony of the Spirit, testimony, testifying to the, to the truth. So uh, I, I've probably said too much about uh, creeds and confessions, but uh, follow, or not follow along, listen as I read for us the Athanasian Creed or the first part of it. Uh, he, listen to the uh, articulate and distinct language about the Trinity. I want you to, I want, that's what I want you to hear. Whoever wants to be saved should, above all, cling to the Catholic faith, the little Catholic faith, a little C Catholic faith. Whoever does not guard it whole and inviolable will doubtless perish eternally. Now, this is the Catholic faith. We worship one God in Trinity and the Trinity in unity, never confusing the persons nor dividing the divine being. For the Father is one person, the Son is another, And the Spirit is still another, but the deity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is one, equal in glory, co-eternal in majesty. What the Father is, the Son is, and so is the Holy Spirit. Uncreated is the Father, uncreated is the Son, uncreated is the Spirit. The Father is infinite, the Spirit is infinite, the Holy, excuse me, the Son is infinite, the Holy Spirit is infinite. Eternal is the Father, eternal is the Son, eternal is the Spirit. And yet there, there are not three eternal beings, but one who is eternal. And there are not three uncreated and unlimited beings, but one who is uncreated and unlimited. Almighty is the Father, Almighty is the Son, Almighty is the Spirit. And yet there are not three almighty beings, but one who is almighty. Thus the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God, and yet there are not three gods, but one. Thus the Father is Lord, the Son is Lord, the Holy Spirit is Lord, and yet there are not three lords, but one. As Christian truth compels us to acknowledge each distinct person as God and Lord, so Catholic religion forbids us to say that there are three gods or lords. The Father is neither made nor created nor begotten. The Son is neither made nor created, but was alone begotten of the Father. The Spirit was neither made nor created, but is proceeding from the Father and the Son. Thus, There is one Father, not three fathers, one Son, not three sons, one Holy Spirit, not three spirits. And in this Trinity, no one is before or after, 
greater or less than the other, but all three persons are in themselves co-eternal and co-equal. So we must worship the Trinity and unity and the one God in three persons. Whoever wants to be saved should think thus about the Trinity. Consider the words of Athanasius as a summation of the teachings of Scripture. Now, we could, if it was my intention this morning to show the biblical support of that, we could break that down going to John chapter 1, Deuteronomy 6, Colossians 1, all sorts of other scriptures to support what was said in that creed. But I wanted it to kind of ruminate on you of what was happening there in the creedal uh, profession there. That, That there are three persons in the one God and yet one God. And that as we think about that as finite beings, we find, and actually what's attributed to Athanasius is we find that we should think along the Trinity in this way, that the Trinity is not a formula to be solved, but a mystery to be beheld or a mystery to that is revealed to us. And so as we approach this unapproachable light, this incomprehensible God, my prayer is that the Spirit of God would allow us to apprehend some truth as he allowed those early Christians to do so in this creed, that they apprehended the truth of the Trinity, that by it they were encouraged to live lives in accordance with what's revealed in Scripture. By it they were able to testify and undergo severe persecution because of it. Athanasius himself being exiled uh, time and time again. He was uh, a bishop of Alexandria and he, he spent as much time outside, outside of Alexandria as he did in Alexandria. He's the one, Athanasius Contramundo against the world and he was there holding the banner the Trinitarian banner this was what he saw was so important to understand that he was willing to face exile and even death over it and so as we look at specifically these the Trinitarian operations in salvation in Ephesians chapter 1 and we focus our attention in verses 3 through 6 on God the Father It may be helpful to us to understand that when the Father is viewed rightly, the benefit of it is that he becomes the object of our gratitude, not of our dread. It's oftentimes that God the Father is promoted as maybe the God of the Old Testament, this wrath-seeking God who, who needs to have satisfaction and only by the uh, atonement of Christ is then he is now able to love us. That there's some resistance to the Father in loving his creation. This is how sometimes it's perceived. Sometimes it's wrongly taught. Certainly in those that seek to undo the doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement. That, that Christ was in our place and took our real punishment the wrath of God upon himself. They would like to promote the Father as one who is to be dreaded. 
But here as we look at Ephesians chapter 1 verses 3 through 6, we see that the Father when viewed rightly becomes the object of our gratitude and should not be dreaded in that sense. Certainly sin will be judged on the last day, but if your sins have been judged already upon Christ, then the father who will, as a good father, discipline you and draw you back into correction would not be one to dread, but one to be loved and to fill our hearts with gratitude toward him. The other abiding truth here is that if we discover who God is and what he has done for us, we will praise him. And eventually we'll get to the reality that it is the spirit that works through those means to enliven us to then turn to the one who we were an enemy of, turn to the one who we were rebellious of, and then praise him. And so as we look at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 works for this section as sort of a thesis or theme-like statement. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Paul then quickly moves on to this idea of how then the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ has blessed us in Christ. And then he'll move on from there to talk about the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, how we are in him, and then by which, how is that all ever possible as we look at the Holy Spirit? But the first thing in this thesis and theme-like statement that we can observe is the Trinitarian construct of it. Paul opens his letter with with Trinitarian doctrine. With the implication of all the truth of scripture about the Father, the Son, and the Spirit embedded here in the context of verse 3. God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. God and Lord. Elohim and Yahweh. Kyrios here and Theos, or Theos and Kyrios. These terms, these words had direct connection to the Old Testament's understanding of who God had revealed himself to be. And even more connected to then, as we saw in just our New Testament scripture reading, who Christ had proclaimed himself to be during his incarnation. And then... If you're wondering, it doesn't say Holy Spirit. Look then how the nature of these blessings. They're not carnal. They're not physical. They're spiritual blessings. How are spiritual blessings communicated to us except by the Spirit of the living God? Here we see Paul's intention to show the Ephesians that their salvation is a work of of the triune God. 
And here's the quote that I'd said earlier because Athanasius said to have approached, Athanasius is said to have approached Trinitarian doctrine, the one God who subsists in three persons, not as a problem to be solved, but as a mystery to be discerned. And we were able to read that creed and see these uh, formative statements, these truths from Scripture that we find that, that when God says, I, the Lord, your God, am one, was not a comma or a pause until I reveal myself to be more than one. It was a true, uh, what we call ontological, a true statement about the being of God. The divine essence is one. It's undivided. Though we use words to further describe it as it's revealed in Scripture that this God then subsists in three persons. If you're not a little woozy, then you're not paying attention. This is a divine mystery. There's much more to be said. There's much more to be uncovered and discerned. And I, and I would encourage you to take up this doctrine in your personal study. Uh, I can point you to some excellent resources that will guide you and I believe bear much fruit. And I wouldn't be surprised if it becomes the subject of our uh, Wednesday night studies eventually in the future. But we, as we continue on is in, in our passage and we see that Paul uses this Trinitarian construct to open this section, to open this sentence. He does so with great purpose and intention to begin with revealing the Father. The other thing we recognize in the theme is that there is a threefold use of the term bless or blessing. Spurgeon says, observe well that the same word is used in reference to our wish towards God and God's act towards us. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us. It's a very striking thing that our poor pebble stones of wishes should be valued so much that the same word should be used in reference to them as in reference to the priceless diamonds of grace which the Lord has bestowed upon us. We bless God because he blesses us. This is the stage, this is uh, the springboard at which Paul then goes on into a discussion of the Father in his election in his love and in his grace. This is the headings that we're going to address our passage this morning. And yes, I finally got to our passage this morning. So if you're keeping track and you want to keep a track with an outline, we're going to address it under his election, his love, and his grace. His election in verse 4, even as he chose us, in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. He treats the blessing of he treats election as a blessing. It's not a badge of honor. It's it's not a, a place of boasting. It's a place of blessing. He sets forth the advantages of this election because it is free. As he chose us in him. It is eternal because it's before the foundation of the world and it's fruitful. 
that we should be holy. And if we are to incorporate the next two words, it is also gratuitous and that it's in love. I think you can go either way there. Uh, in the ESV, it has a period. I believe the NASB also has the period before in love as a textual note. Uh, we can recognize that what Paul has done with a singular sentence, English translators have uh, differed on whether they should put a period or a comma after blameless before him. It does not lose any emphasis whether we put it there or, or don't. I think it does flow as a period in that we are chosen in him and then in love he predestines us. Why is that important? Because the love of the Father is not something bought for us on Calvary. The love of the Father is displayed for us on Calvary. We know this. We, maybe, we, maybe we don't pay attention to it as much, but John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. It was the love of the Father that sent the Son. It was the love of creation. It was the love of his elect that here is displayed in his predestining us. And even more so, because we're not just predestined to be servants, although we are servants of God. We're not just predestined to be uh, a pets or inanimate objects or, or just as we would probably be in the glory of God, just satisfied to be outside the gates of the city, to bask in the glory of it, but to be brought in, to be drawn near such that the word adoption is used that in love he predestined us for purpose statement for adoption to himself God intended when he created to produce a godly people one whom that he would adopt into his household to be sons and daughter, daughters of the Most High. Things, uh, though uh, sinfully go wrong, decretally, according to God's plan, don't go wrong in the garden. In the sense that it was always God's plan to display His perfect love for us in that while we were yet still sinners, Christ died for us. As Paul will go on to say, the, the earthly witness to the exalted Christ is that while well, we were dead in our trespasses and sins, right? But God, according to the riches of his mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, has raised us up and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. But we're not on the earthly witness. We're on the heavenly witness of the exalted Christ. Why is it important that we continue to consider the exalted Christ? 
because it says here that, it, that we are blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places or in the heavenlies. It's important for us to see that because where is the Son of God according to the flesh? In glory. What assurance do we have that we will one day be with him in glory as that he is already there? We must continue to remind ourselves that as we speak of such things, we enter into new categories or we enter into new doctrines of the incarnation. Again, maybe to be parsed out in, in another sermon, but to be understood that what happens in the incarnation is not the dissolution of the divine essence or the division of the divine essence, but merely or, or magnificently and mysteriously the assumption of a human nature in union with it. So that the divine remains the divine and the human remains human. And so as we have a glorified Savior in his human nature, we have hope that we too one day will be glorified. So that it can be said that we are blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So that we in love or he predestines us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Are we, are we feeling the, the emphasis here on this idea of the Father and his election and in his love for us has direct purpose to how we live, how we praise him, how we praise the triune God? God first loves us to life before the means bring us into this life. He even first loves us to life before the means bringing us to life are decreed for the purpose of adopting us. Adoption means becoming God's sons and daughters with all the privileges implied on the basis of on this basis, we are said to be heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Spurgeon, again, is helpful. No man can ever have a right in himself to become adopted. Speaking of adopted, adoption uh, in, our, in our understanding, if a king could adopt any into his family, it would likely be the son of one of his lords. At any rate, some child of respectable parentage he would scarce take the son of some common felon or some gypsy child to adopt him into his family. But God, in this case, has taken the very worst to be his children. The saints of God all confess that they are the last persons they should ever have dreamed he would have chosen. Again, let us think not only of our original lineage, but of our personal character. He who knows himself will never think that he had much to recommend him to God. In other cases of adoption, there usually is some recommendation. A man, when he adopts a child, sometimes is moved thereto by its extraordinary beauty, or at other times by its intelligent manners and winning disposition. But no, 
He found a rebellious child, a filthy, frightful, ugly child. He took it to his bosom. In love, he predestined us for adoption. To the praise of his glorious grace. His grace. Another commentator said, Brethren, the sea is salt as a whole, and every drop of it is salt in its degree. If the whole work of salvation be of grace, every detail of that work is equally of grace. The rays of the sun as a whole possess certain properties. Analyze one single sunbeam, and you shall find all those properties there. Here to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. As we search the scriptures and see and read of our redemption in Christ, we should not read of anything or nothing should leap off the page more or as if you drank salt water should stay on your tongue as more than the grace of of God. Here is displayed er, as being explained as a terminus of God the Father. We'll get into, as we continue to discuss the Trinitarian operations and salvation, this wonderful doctrine called the inseparable operations of the Trinity. Nobody fainted. That's okay. When, you, when I describe it to you, you, you might feel like it. These are glorious doctrines, brothers and sisters. But as much as they are against some current grain of the church in just give me grace and don't give me doctrine, as they've done in my life, they've enriched my worship of God in that understanding more the degree uh, and wonder and mystery of our triune God. What does it do but take my eyes off of creaturely stumblings and creaturely weaknesses as I recognize and think that if I just worked enough here, I, I could better myself the sanctification thing, there must be a trick to it. There's got to be a step-by-step -step manual, five ways to be better sanctified until you come to the doctrine of the Trinity. And as we hear in our passage, as we look at the grace of God, we find that there's no room for that. There's no room for the creature to assume a part in it that is of any merit. We find that there's no room for the creature to assume a part in it that's, that, that gains anything. For as we will see, it is by the moving of the Spirit in us that we were even brought to a state to think of such things. So also this doctrine can be unfortunately used for much intellectual pride that we know 
uh, we've heard the Athanasius Creed or we've thought of these things deeply and we may be drawn into prideful speculation as to why it is. But the doctrine of the Trinity as it's true in us should draw us right back to recognize that we come as worthless sinners, beggars to the throne room of grace, to the riches and immeasurable riches of the knowledge of Christ, knowing that whatever we grasp here and now is only by the grace of God. Well, the next section was supposed to be something to think about. I think I might have given you at least a portion of it. But think first in his election, and as I've said, it eliminates boasting. As we worked through last month, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the end of it says, so that there would be no boasting except in the Lord. The election of God is not for boasting. It should eliminate our boasting, for we had no part in it. If we had a part in it, surely we would have messed it up. The other thing is this idea of his election should encourage our assurance. We may be let down in that it, it, it strikes at our ego and, and we may need to repent of some pride. But may we be encouraged then by the idea that this election should encourage our assurance. James Montgomery Boyce says, suppose it were otherwise. Suppose the ultimate grounds of salvation were in ourselves. In that case, salvation would be as unstable as we are. We might be saved one moment and lost the next. And as Calvin says, if our faith were not grounded in God's eternal election, it is certain that Satan might pluck it from us every minute. We can think about his love. That as adopted sons and daughters, we have the privilege of bringing all things to God in prayer and of being heard by him. I can go to the, or I don't know how close I can get to the Capitol these days, I don't, uh, the White House even, but I can go to wherever the limiter is and I can shout all I want. Plead my case. Hear me out. Stop this injustice. Change the law. Change this. But I have no guarantee that I will be heard. We have no, I have no guarantee that I will be heeded. That there will be any consideration to what I said. That is an earthly magistrate. There are times to my great dishonor and sin that my own children... shouldn't have gone there <laughs> my own children come to me and I don't hear them but <laughs> his love has adopted us as sons and daughters that the God of the universe the one who holds all things in his hands who ordains all things who has accomplished all things in Christ he hears our prayers he petitions us he bids us 
to come and be heard. And his grace, his grace, may we think about his grace being freely bestowed upon us in the beloved. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. In Christ, God is well pleased with us. For if the son, if the, if the father is pleased with the son, then he is pleased with the son's progeny, the son's sons and daughters. Finally, let us think about this time and this thing we call worship as it relates to the Father. Octavius Winslow says, Oh, that we would see we are debtors to God the Father. What debtors are they to the Father for his electing love, for the covenant of grace, for his unspeakable gift, for having blessed us with all spiritual blessings in Christ Jesus? We but imperfectly estimate the debt of love, gratitude, and service which we owe to him whose mind the eternal Son came to reveal, whose will he came to do, and whose heart he came to unveil. It was the Father who sent the Son with him originated, expedient of our redemption. He it was who laid all our sins on Jesus. It was his sword of justice that smote the shepherd, while his hand of love and protection was laid upon the little ones. We have too much supposed that the atonement of Jesus was intended to inspire the mercy rather than to propitiate the justice of God, to awaken in his heart a love that did not previously exist. Thus we have overlooked the source from where originated our salvation and as I've lost sight of the truth that the mediation of Jesus was not the cause but rather the effect of God's love to man. Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and gave us his son to be a propitiation for our sins. Oh, for the spirit to understand and for grace to feel and for love to exemplify our deep obligation to God for the everlasting love that gave us his son. This all to the praise of his glorious grace let us go to this gracious God this loving God in prayer